Hello, my name is Dave Lewis, and I am the host of Cinemillennials, a podcast where myself and another millennial watch a classic film that we haven't seen before, ranging from the early 1900s to the late 1960s, and discuss its significance and relevance in our world today. On today's episode, I talk with Andreas Babulakis, creator of FilmsFatale.com, about the 1953 western, Shane, starring Alan Ladd, Gene Arthur, Van Heflin, and Brandon DeWilde, which is also directed by the great George Stevens, who directed Giant, A Place in the Sun, The Diary of Anne Frank, and The Greatest Story Ever Told. Shane follows the story of a mysterious man named Shane, who rides into the lives of humble homesteaders Joe, Marion, and their son Joey on the vast plains of Wyoming. Joey is immediately fascinated with the man and his ornamented gun belt, thinking he must be this great hero. That is, until his mother tells him not to get too attached. Shane thinks he has found a paradise, until he is thrust into an ongoing war between the homesteaders and the local cattle baron, Riker, and his gang. Shane feels he must act in order to protect the family he has fallen in love with, and to redeem himself. So sit back, relax, and... Hey Andreas, welcome to the show. What was the first film you saw in theaters, and what are your favorite films at the moment? The only one I can recollect, because... I'm not one of those people who can remember things as far back as possible. Like, I do not remember much of my childhood. The one that I remember the most, believe it or not, I was born in Johannesburg, South Africa. So this is way back in the day when I was back in South Africa. And I think we had it later than North America did. It was Aladdin. And mm -hmm. I believe I was a little bit older because back then the movie theaters wouldn't get stuff all at the same time like they basically do now except for you know the occasional marvel and the uk or whatever so yeah i was a little bit behind when people in the states would have gotten aladdin but that's like the that's the earliest one i can remember there's probably something else mm -hmm. but i can't remember anything else as for my favorite films right now i'm gonna have to go with roma by alfonso Cuaron, which i think is my favorite film of the 2010s and i absolutely adore it and it's just stuff that you don't really see anymore. And mm. it's just so, oh, I, but this isn't about Roma. So I don't want to go too heavily into that, but I, I absolutely adore it. And uh, that's one where if you didn't get a chance to see it in theaters, because it was a Netflix release, if it ever does come back, I implore that you do so. One of the great cinematic in theater experiences I've had in the last number of years, like the sound mixing, how it looked on the big screen, it, just the whole thing was a, a golfing experience. That's a advertisement for watching Roma if I've ever heard one. Um, <laughs> now I know you have experiences watching classic films before. So again, this is kind of like the same question as the last, what's the first one you saw remember watching and what are your favorites now? Outside of things like Mary Poppins and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and stuff when you were like a kid, the first one that I sussed out myself where I said, okay, I'm a budding cinephile. I want to watch the good old days types of things. Outside of film school, the one that I 
got myself to watch when I was a teenager was Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal. Oh. He's got on to be my all-time favorite filmmaker. I adore Bergman. <laughs> I got that Criterion box set. Oh, but that's you. where it all started. <laughs> yeah. Lucky well, you. I got that when I was doing my master's and I was I was pretty broke and I made myself, you know, in a worse position. But <laughs> it was worth it. Uh, I guess to answer your next question, my all-time favorite classic is Persona. So that kind of fits, you know, the whole Bergman thing. But to give you something else that's not Bergman, I love all sorts of classics like Chinatown, um, mm. The Battle of Algiers. For something lighter, Charade by Stanley Donan. With, I've been uh, hearing good things about that. Oh, it's the greatest genre bender i've ever seen it's like a romantic <laughs> comedy horror thriller it's oh i didn't yeah that. don't tell me oh. anymore i don't know anything about it <laughs> i won't say anything all i will say is it's insanely quotable for me personally and i just i actually suffer from insomnia and mm, sleep apnea wow. so i have a lot of sleep issues so that's my most watched film ever because whenever i'm having like these problems it usually like lulls me to sleep not in a bad way but like because it's just so you know, it's just so I love every single thing about it, like the first line in it. And it's light at the same time, but still mm -hmm. stimulating. It's often being called the best Hitchcockian film that he never made, wow. which, okay. you know, there's a lot of films that can like fight for that title, I think. But for me, yeah, it's probably my favorite comedy or considerable comedy. The Good, the Bad and the Ugly was probably the first impressionable one when I was a late teenager, you know, outside of like the Seven Seal. This could go on forever. <laughs> <laughs> so you clearly have a lot of classic film literacy here, for sure, more than most people I have on the show. So why did you pick Shane? Did you know anything about it before watching the film? The pandemic happened, or it's still happening, but it started mm -hmm. last March. And something that was going to be a long-term goal for my website, Films Fatale, was to do these best 100 lists of each decade. So that mm -hmm. required a lot of homework. So once the pandemic happened, I smushed my two-year plan into one year, <laughs> and I watched as much as possible. And mm -hmm. a lot of the things on your on your list were things that I either already loved or things that I watched literally that year. So it's like, oh, my bad. So <laughs> the problem is you can't watch everything. Right. Even if you devote all your time to it, even if you're working from home and you can watch. And one of the ones that I sadly just did not have time for when I reached the 50s was Shane. So mm. when I saw that, I was like, ah, there it is again. You know, if that wasn't like the reminder that I missed out on something. So I said, I'm going to go with this because I was going to watch it. I just did not have time watching. You don't want to know how many things I watched last year. It's a little embarrassing. <laughs> um, watching so many things. And. I knew this one. Mm. Like, I've heard it so many times. But the other beautiful thing is I actually did not know much about it at all. Like, the only thing I know about it, thanks to this cult video game from the 90s called mm. The Town With No Name, it's like a notoriously awful game. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be like a spoof mm. on Westerns and stuff because there's like a fake Clint Eastwood in there as well. This kid comes running for their train saying... The guy with no name shoots him and says, My name's not Shane, kid. That's the only <laughs> thing I knew about Shane. <laughs> That's it. By name and by this. I put this off. This is my chance to watch it again. And I need to know it more than that stupid game. I'm going to get to a movie that I'm surprised that you did not mention with knowing things that you know. So we'll get back to that later. What did you think of the film in general? For the most part, I really liked it. 
like overall, I think it's great. I love, for instance, the score, which mm. you can hear like right away. The yeah. score is just gorgeous. And if anything, that to me feels almost like what Inu Morricone was doing with the spaghetti westerns, like a like a precursor. So Ennio Marcone, if you listeners haven't heard this name, greatest score composer of all time, unfortunately passed away on my birthday. So like that's just the most that's unfortunate a claim, sir. <laughs> oh, that he's like the greatest. Oh yeah, I I'll stick by that ever any day. But the music by Victor Young here is similarly so spiritual feelings. It, like it's like the soul of the West, which is what Marcone picked up on. And I think it it really resonates here as well. And you get that right away. So otherwise, to go back to like the whole revisionist thing, you have this kid who, you know, the titular Shane comes into mm -hmm. town as obviously a symbolic of like the old ways of the West. And you have this kid, Joey, who idolizes him as if he's like the next face of the western right. and this is what i'm talking about the revisionist thing where it's not revisionist but it's still this statement that's more than just hey i'm a lone ranger this and this there's mm -hmm. obviously like some deep commentary here about you know the western genre overall and like not its influence on kids but still like you know the next generation and it's it's wide-eyed glances at like you know the ways of the old and right. there's a turning point Mm. about two-thirds of the way through, or maybe it's like one-third of the way through. It's like a climax before the climax, let's say. And I think because of its length and because it's slightly monotonous, I feel like that's like the one mm. kind of dud of the film where it kind of goes on for too long and the uh, the poor aging of the Foley sounds doesn't help it either. Mm. Um, but outside of that, I thought it was quite a beautiful watch. And uh, especially like the the resolution of it like the like you know the actual climax the way the whole thing resolves you know the poignancy of of its ending i think is all quite special so overall i think it's it's, it's a really good western at the end of the film one of the characters says to another character it's, it's all about you know your day is done he's like what about yours your day is done too but he's like yeah but i know my day is done i know the day of the gunslinger is gone 
You just exactly. don't know the difference. And it was such a great line. It really hit me out of the bolt of a blue where it was like, wow, okay, now I'm really getting more into that kind of subliminal thing that you were talking about, and we'll get to the themes later. And I think the movie is, I totally agree with you, the music is amazing. There is such a great combination of new work and old work in there, because you do have Dixie in there, you do have period accurate or period appropriate songs in there with with the harmonica, with at the dance when they're singing the songs for the 4th of July. Even George Stevens, the director, made sure that everything was as period accurate as they could get, even down to the little inlays of the pistols. And you even have like the spurs, you have everything that's there. That music and that kind of Foley artist, which I kind of agree with you to a certain degree, but I also don't because I think that really immerses us because not many people are going to know these accurate kind of things. Of course. And that really brings people into the actual characters and what they feel these characters are and what they're going to do next and how we get to know those characters because we do have all these details but people have a certain specific idea of what the west was from the movies that you were mentioning before with westerns and i think the music really really ties that stuff all together as well as the cinematography because the locations are absolutely gorgeous you feel like you're in the middle of nowhere in wyoming and you totally get the whole kind of purpose of what our characters are and what they're trying to do within the film and i think shane is so likable and is so charismatic you can't help but like him but i think alan ladd has a great performance as shane and the kid that played joey is great we have the last performance of gene arthur because she was friends with the director george stevens and she was like i'll do anything for you george and this is the only color film that she's in and she gives a great performance because i feel like sometimes throughout the film she is the moral clarity for all of our players and she knows before anybody else, what is going to happen to Shane and what is happening inside his heart, you know, inside of his emotions and what he's wanting to do and what he actually wants to be, but he can't be. Joey? Yes? Don't get to liking Shane too much. Why not? I don't want you to. Is there anything wrong with him? No. Then what, Mother? You'll be moving on one day, Joey. You'll be upset. If he gets liking him too much. Yeah, it's almost fitting that there is like a golden age icon like Gene Arthur who fits this this role because it's the voice of the wise shining out where so much of this film is hinged around providing voices for different generations, specifically in a cinematic genre of sorts or a cinematic storytelling to have this recognizable face who is able to say, please listen to these words like I'm letting you know. It's just so fitting. And again, yeah, as you brought up that her and Stevens are really good friends. That only makes it more touching that this was her swan song, especially and you brought up the cinematography, which I believe this won an Academy Award for. Mm-hmm. Like it's not even just the color, which mm-hmm. is a typical but great technicolor of the 50s right. it's the depth of field like mm-hmm. you brought up the landscape and how it just seems like it could just be anywhere and it's so impressionable and i feel like that's because it just doesn't end like you can right. stare down kilometers and see 
oh my god, like this never ends and it's just beautiful. Yeah, the blue sky is really nice and the orange desert landscape is really nice as well, but it's the endlessness of the landscapes and, you know, in the interiors, it's being able to see all of the fine details on the furniture and everything, you know, to an extent, because it's still the 50s, but it's, that's where it shines. And, you know, you brought up how Stevens was a stickler for accuracy. It's cinematography like this that enhances it. So all Mm -hmm. of it is not just for a lost cause. All of it is for a good reason, because you can see it. So well-deserved win on that front. Like a lot of Stevens films, like Giant, for instance, the production on this thing was just crazy. Like, Mm -hmm. just so massive in scope. And even Gene Arthur was QTing the animals, and she was making sure that they were okay, because she was a big animal activist. And it's really interesting to see the care with her character and the care within um, even her husband's character as well, because he is so caring about the community that they have with the homesteaders and how he knows that as the little guy, quote unquote, he has to stand up to the big guy. And he knows like Shane is going to be a tool for that. But at the same time, he still respects Shane and his opinions. And he still says like, Shane, what do you think? Shane, what are we going to do until maybe at the end? But at the same time, he is still a great role model for Joey Mm -hmm. as well, because he is somebody that is doing the work himself, the one that he wants to make sure he has the right amount of tools for his family and the right amount of work for his family that they can be prosperous and survive without going to guys like Riker that are clearly morally corrupt within what they're doing. Riker gives that speech about like, oh, I was here before everybody else. We worked hard too. But at the same time, Riker is forgetting that he had to do all this hard work so that other people could be with them there. It's not just Mm -hmm. hard work. It's your livelihood. I understand that. But it's not your land. It's not your land that you're going to have on. And that's what Joe says. Joey's father says, and he's like, the government created the Homestead Act, which is where people could stake their claims on unclaimed land and things like that in the United States history. And Riker is saying, I want to keep that for myself because I worked here. This is my thing. But at the same time, Riker's not realizing that, you know, for it to grow and for it to do to, to be a better place for him and for everybody else around him, he has to let that go and say, OK, they're going to make this kind of homestead better and then they're going to make the town better and then all that kind of stuff. He doesn't realize that. And that's why he also is on the way out, because he thinks about more of the ideas of the past rather than where things are going in the future like Shane is. Yeah, I love when Westerns take into account this whole idea of the purchasing of property or what property means. How do you start? Evening, ma'am. I had something I wanted to talk over with you, Stark. Whatever business you and I got, we can talk over right here. I'll just lay it on the barrel head then. How would you like to work for me? I'm working for myself. Got enough working for others. Wait till I tell you. I'll pay you top wages. More than you can make on this patch of ground. No, I'm not interested. I haven't said it all. You can run your cattle with mine. What's more, I'll buy your homestead. Set a price you think is reasonable. Find me reasonable. Is that fair? 
You've made things pretty hard for us, Riker. And us in the right all the time. Right! You in the right! Look, Star. When I come to this country, you weren't much older than your boy there. We had rough times. Me and other men that are mostly dead now. I got a bad shoulder yet from a Cheyenne arrowhead. We made this country. Found it and we made it. Worked blood and empty bellies. Cattle we brought in were hazed off by Indians and rustlers. Don't bother you much anymore because we handled them. We made a safe range out of this. Some of us died doing it. We made it. And then people move in who never had a raw hide it through the old days. Fence off my range and fence me off from water. Some of them, like you, plow ditches and take out irrigation water. And so the creek runs dry sometimes. I've got to move my stock because of it. And you say we have no right to the range. The men that did the work and ran the risks have no rights. I take you for a fair man, Star. I'm not belittling what you and the others did. At the same time, you didn't find this country. There was trappers here and Indian traders long before you showed up. They tamed this country more than you did. They weren't ranchers. You talk about rights. You think you've got the right to say that nobody else has got any. Well, that ain't the way the government looks at it. I didn't come to argue. I made you a fair proposition. What about the others? Shane already knows he can work for me anytime. The other homesteaders. Look, be reasonable. After all, there are just so many hands in a deck of cards. And I've got to say no. You don't give a man much choice, do you, Stark? So much of what a Western is is setting, including mm -hmm. the town with the saloon and here's where you're going to be staying and here's where all of the little villages are so it's this idea of these towns and these lone rangers that stumble upon them mm -hmm. so in this case it's shane and like other lone rangers and other westerns assumes the identity of the town or the town assumes the identity of, of himself mm -hmm. so something like this it's so interesting that there is this angle but at the same time the way that Alan Ladd performs as Shane is clearly a protagonist, so not mm -hmm. necessarily somebody you're unsure of, right. but not so single-noted. Mm -hmm. Like You feel like there is like not necessarily something that he's hiding, but he's mm -hmm. got perhaps personal demons that he's trying to contain within himself because you're technically watching this not necessarily from Joey's perspective, the child, but an outsider perspective. So you're not necessarily listening in on Shane's thought. One of the most important parts of the film is that of a witness looking at Shane. So mm -hmm. the idea of identity, whether it's the town or Shane himself or those influenced by Shane or those antagonized by Shane and, you know, those same relationships with the town itself. Is this mine? Is this my property? Like, whose is it? What does it mean if it is mine? What if it, what does it mean that if it isn't? So it's a lot of these, and you brought it up before when I brought up the 
the prolonged scene with the, the mm-hmm. holy sound and stuff, that it's important that there is this immersion because so much of the film is not necessarily plot, but it's understanding the relationships between uh, characters and settings, setting and itself, characters and themselves, moods. So, yeah, a good majority of the film is allowing a lot of these situations to unfurl, and I think that's very special. With classic films, I think they have a meandering for a purpose, where you're kind of saying it was a little monotonous at some points. But with that, I think those points are meant to ground the audience in realizing what their surrounding is and to be acclimatized to that surrounding and to be like, okay, this is what this character is about. This is what this character is about. We can see everything around us being so gorgeous and we know why Joe and the rest of the homesteaders want to fight for this ground because of the various different meanings to them, what it really means to them. With Shane, you do get that that mysterious attitude as well as we know what happens right away because as an audience, as you and I being millennials grew up for generations and generations, whatever, before us, we understand that kind of mythical hero worship of Jesse James, Billy the Kid, you know, all these kind of outlaws and all the different folk tales that we've grown up with as widespread North Americans to a certain degree. I know myself a little bit more than yourself with being from Joburg and everything like that Mm -hmm. and being in Canada. And I think what I kind of wanted to take away from this, one of the main themes, and we're going to get into the themes a little bit, Shane is our protagonist. Yes, and it's not really from the perspective of Joey, but I think it is because maybe this is a story that Joey is told or Joey tells later to his kids after what Shane has told him, you know, at the end of the film. Because you do see like hero worship is the majority of, you know, it's the main theme that we're getting here. Joey is obsessed with shooting because like, oh, yeah, (laughs) you know, as a kid, like myself specifically, I loved cowboys and the old west and everything like that. The way Shane is structured is that hero worship and how can ultimately reveal the truth about the so-called hero that we're focused on. That's also true. That is a fair point. And perhaps that is, you know, when you look at it that way, that this could be this mythological tale that, you know, is for the rest of us, but it's a personal tale for Joey to tell, you know, whomever in the future that could explain a lot of its gaze. So uh, the way that it shows Shane uh, high angled uh, camera angles, the way that he gets framed in shots, Mm -hmm. especially when he first rides in on his horse, Mm -hmm. you know, all of that stuff. And it's not, just the good old american western like the john wayne films and whatnot right. but specifically this is what it is to joey himself who like a lot of western fans during this time and beforehand this is probably what it felt like to them where it was like oh my god i want to be john wayne which right you know in 2021 let's be honest <laughs> wants to be john wayne the guy's so problematic but i digress you know they want to be that western hero or the gary cooper or the robert mitchum you know whomever so in this case it's alan ladd who i feel like he fits the bill exceptionally well, but he also brings something a little different. And it's not a mysteriousness. It's almost like a familiarity from outside of the genre. You feel comfortable with this guy, even if you don't have a really good reason as to why. So Mm -hmm. I do think that you're probably spot on about this 
being strictly Joey's perspective, especially because yeah, you you know he's like flailing his gun around, yelling bang 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 bang. Oh my like, god, that stressed me out like close to the end. I'm like, oh my god, stop the suspense and the buildup of what was going to happen next. I'm like, please stop. You're stressing me out. Stop it, Joey. Again, that's a thing that maybe it's not just from Joey's perspective. Maybe it's from the family, the Starrett's perspective because you do have Marianne constantly stressed about this kind of thing and maybe that particular scene is really showing us what her mind is like as her husband and as somebody that's working for her husband that's gotten very close to the family what they're about to do what their plan is and how that whole thing unloads no isn't there anything I can say that'll change things can't you see honey maybe this is a chance Morgan and them boys went home. You don't really believe that. That's not the reason. It's just too much for me to give up. This place and valley. All the things that will be. Will be. Bang! Because it's about her saying, like, and at the beginning of the movie, and uh, the beginning of our conversation, I think she is the moral compass because yes. she's the one that's saying, like, Shane's not trying to be who he was in the past. He's trying to lay down his roots, trying to be somebody that could eventually have a family life, that could eventually get away from his thing. But at the same time, she knows that that's not possible for him. Because as Shane does say at the end, Joey, there's no living with with a killing. There's no going back from them. Right or wrong, it's a brand. A brand sticks. There's no going back. That really is the driving point of this movie, is to tell people, and, and it, like you were saying, a lot of kids and a lot of people at the time wanted to be these quote-unquote, like how we say, now these badasses in these action movies. Mm-hmm. These kids wanted to be and thought these amazing Western heroes from on the screen, on the little, uh, you know, books or whatever that were passed around, even back in the actual contemporary period of that time where the booklets, the little penny books would be getting passed around from kid to kid. They were almost like comic books of their day of these outlaws. And here's the actual reason why these kids should not be worshiping these quote unquote heroes because they are murderers and we shouldn't worship these people for the bad things that they do. Which is why it's important that Shane is the way that he is, because he's not necessarily a bad person. He just right. has partaken and partakes in bad things. Primarily the whole outlaw thing, as you pointed out. It's or not the even... gunslinger, I should say. I'm sorry. Sorry. Exactly. Gunslinger. Gunslinger. Yeah. Yeah. Gunslinger is probably more appropriate because I, I guess an outlaw is specifically trying to be bad about all right. this. Where the gunslinger might do it for good. And that's why he's saying. Right and wrong is a brand. Brand sticks. There's no going back. He understands that, like, this is not going to change, that he's going to forever be the idol to this kid, so he might as well make it worthwhile and tell him the truth. Mm-hmm. That maybe I'm okay with this, but I'm also not. There's still these demons that haunt me, and that's just something that I want to let you know, that I might be an idol to you, but I'm not necessarily an idol for myself. 
And this is why it's very important that you understand the gravity of being in this type of position when really you can be an honest farmer or some other contributor to your community as opposed to this. This might seem fun, but it isn't. Throughout the film, you really get this kind of sense of how, you know, and you're talking about you're talking about earlier, but how going from one generation to the next and how one generation, that generation, in the 40s and 50s, and how obsessed popular culture was and the zeitgeist was with the Western from the Lone Ranger to the very hard stuff that we're talking about now with Shane and a couple other films that we see this hero worship and we see the reality of that hero worship and we see the reality of guns. We see the reality of how much damage they do to people physically and mentally and spiritually to a certain degree. You are just coming out of the Second World War. People are going into the Korean War. Kids are seeing these films. Kids are seeing what's happening in the world. And they're kind of saying, hey, yes, these things are happening, but you have to realize that the people that are doing these things might not necessarily feel as they are heroes because of what they did. They might be ashamed of what they did. They might be proud of what they did, but they know what the ultimate price is. And that still sticks with you forever. That does not go away. It constantly appears in your life. For us growing up, and especially right now in our cultural sphere, our historical sphere, the the historical events that are surrounding us, I might be talking about more like about my experiences in the US rather than Canada, but I know Canada also has had school shootings and things like that as well. It's interesting to see that conversation because you and I grew up in the 90s and you were talking about video games before and how people said violence in video games and movies is making kids killers because, you know, you have the whole Columbine issue. But what the movie is saying is, again, although these kids watch these things and want to be like them, it's not necessarily turning them into these people either. Let's give them a idea of to say these people aren't really heroes. They're people that are doing things to go to their goals or go to something either for the greater good like Shane or you can say the villainy of Wilson. So you're getting both perspectives and you're giving these people that idolize these people and idolize the glorification of violence and how that can affect younger generations as well as the current generations and how they go about doing things. Yeah, this topic is very difficult because yes. I feel like one thing that's a that's a very important factor is we have the internet and we have access to so much. So mm-hmm. I don't necessarily mean that we can watch or play a lot of games or watch a lot of movies, mm-hmm. but it's also hearing about this stuff a lot more than perhaps we might have before right. because there's always been violent behaviors. There's always been these types of problems like centuries before video games were even a thought or remotely this blurb of a concept. Mm -hmm. So it's something that could be pinpointed towards now because it seems like such an obvious conclusion. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, this this person must have been that because they play video games or they watch these violent movies or they listen to, like, crazy metal like Meshuggah or something. But, you Mm -hmm. know, it's not necessarily that. To a lot of people, this stuff is a catharsis. And I don't right. mean in a deranged type of way. Mm-hmm. Like some people might work out listening to like Slayer and stuff, right. or they might 
want to have fun, so they watch it in a movie theater, despite if we take a step back and really look at this, there's some pretty crazy stuff that we're watching, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily make us crazy people or the filmmakers crazy people. It's an exploration of something. But this is where Shane gets really important, where Joey is no longer exploring the idea of this. He's living it and he's showing signs of potentially, you know, waving his pistol around and stuff. But at the end of the day, without spoiling too much, there is a debt that Shane owes. So there's of much importance of Joey in Shane's life as vice versa. But I feel like in a not too graphic way that that was this type of realization for Joey where it's like, hang on, I kind of get the severity of this now and Mm -hmm. what it's like to be like somebody like this, but a typical pre new Hollywood type thing where you Mm -hmm. saw the Hollywood code, but it's not like it's like a cop out or anything like that, but it's still Shane, the film's own way of saying this where it's like, be careful what you wish for because this is your realization. And perhaps in the, what you're saying, this is what it's trying to say to its audience where you can enjoy these films, but trying to live these out or trying to replicate these idols you see on screen, it's not really about that. Mm-hmm. This is an escape. This is a source of entertainment or a type of mind bending exercise if it's something a little bit more obscure. But if it's something like this where there's a lot of shooting and stuff, it's most entertainment. It's an right. escape. It's something that you don't live in your real life. And let's be honest, none of us want to live this in <laughs> life. Like, yeah. I certainly don't. I feel like Shane, the film's approach to having this discussion for a 50s America when it was kind of accepting the fate of the Hollywood code where it's mm-hmm. like, okay, we're kind of getting tired of this. Psycho was just around the corner where right. it's like, okay, now you're like kicking it in the gut for good. You had some like it hot in 1959 as well. And how, exactly. uh, what that says about a lot of different themes. Exactly. And those were both by then veterans, even at that point, you know, Hitchcock had been around since the silent era. Billy mm-hmm. Wilder was writing stuff since the 30s before yeah. making his own films. So they've been around the block and they were like, okay, we're going to figure out ways to get these released in the States because we don't care. And they ended up being two of the best films ever made. So something like this is perhaps a more conservative approach by George Stevens in his way of saying, we're not going to break the code, but we're letting you know. It's fascinating to see how kids are constantly being barraged by a lot of violence and by a lot of moral ambiguity because a page turned within our popular culture zeitgeist when Breaking Bad Game of Thrones came out and its depictions of violence, you know, how it's basically morally ambiguous, that whole kind of thing when people talk about Star Wars, the gray Jedi, the gray moral ground where, you know, maybe there isn't morality altogether. And I think that with Shane, you kind of brought it up. Stevens is kind of saying, don't be like these people. Don't be thirsty for blood. Don't be going after people because they are, quote unquote, bad guys. And there is that moral ambiguity that he references in the film because you, like I said before, you don't want to be like Shane, but you want to be like Shane, but you don't want to be like Wilson. But Wilson is another side of the same coin of Shane and vice versa. The way the film is resolved and the way that Shane, our protagonist, feels about the violence that he's committed in the past or the supposed violence he's committed in the past that has turned him away from that place 
to the Staritz. I think it's fascinating to see that perspective in the 1950s and now. You know, I think it's really fascinating to see that cycle, but in two different ways, where it's one way is restricted by a code, but at the same time, the writers are brilliant enough to say that thing within that kind of restriction. And then you have the writers now, with whether it be George R. R. Martin, whoever, they're able to, quote unquote, get away with that because they don't have that stuff. What a lot of people who might be like anti-violence or anything like that, um, what they might not be understanding is the context. So mm-hmm. you brought up something like Breaking Bad, which first off, you should absolutely watch. Uh, I, <laughs> I know, I know. I, I won't spoil too much, but it's... It's the, the creation of a tainted spirit, let's say. Mm. If you watch something like The Wire, so, you know, you brought up Breaking Bad and Game of Thrones, but this has been going on since yeah, the start of the <laughs> of the golden era, where it's like The Sopranos, Oz, The Wire. The Wire, I've seen a lot of people bring up that there's a lot of swearing and violence, ooh, and it's like, well, this is to give you this overview of what, these types of communities and it's not even just like the ghettos it's also like political communities the school systems the import export industries the media it's all of these different layers and all of their corruption and all of the ways that they either manipulate others to survive or how they try to play the system. A big theme of the show is the fact that everything's a chess game. It's all in the game. Game of Thrones, a lot of the violence in that is through political hierarchical corruption. And that even includes the ways that a lot of the deaths occur, which if you haven't seen the show, I'm not going to say anything. (laughs) But same thing. So is it a violent show? Yes. Mm -hmm. Does it warrant it? I would say sure. I would say that many things that a lot of people consider overly violent or or the like, very few of them are excessive to the point of being nonsensical. So mm-hmm. I don't understand why it's like this. Something like Shane, where it is trying to be this Western that promotes the idea of a moral compass or being put onto the right path, it would only make sense, especially in the Western genre where Westerns are heavily about this type of thing, trying to find the gold. You're on my land, all of that stuff. So it would only be fitting, I would say. What have you seen in other later films that you now recognize from Shane? Maybe on an aesthetic level, there's something like Miller's Crossing where there's that kind of like pensive type of filmmaking or Hell or High Water, where mm. they commit the bank robberies because of this type of imbalance. And you do come across like authoritative figures as well, like the police force, the Jeff Bridges character, and get like a soft spot for them as well. Not every person that has an authoritative stature can lead is necessarily corrupt or anything of that nature. Yeah, otherwise, there's a, a lot of films that deal with this type of stuff. So. Parasite. There's a perfect one. There's Parasite. (laughs) What I want to get back to is what I said at the very beginning of the show. Mm -hmm. The thing that I was surprised that you did not mention at all. I first heard about Shane through watching Logan. Oh, true. The, uh, The Wolverine film. Yes, the Wolverine film, because throughout the film, you pretty much have the same theme as Shane. You have direct references and showing scenes from Shane. 
So people listening, if you haven't seen Shane before, yes, you have. Technically. <laughs> Technically, you have. You've seen very vital parts of Shane, and it goes throughout the whole thing because, again, Shane is this great figure to Joey. And it's the same thing. Logan is this great figure, someone that X-23 is able to identify with him with Logan slash Wolverine as this character, as this person, because she has the same powers. She has this whole thing, and she's learning from Logan that... Don't be what they made you. Because that's what he did. Through his anger, through his violence, he became the, the monster that humans wanted him to be as a mutant, mm-hmm. and or, or thought of him as a mutant. And it's the same thing. People want Shane to be this gunslinger. People don't want Shane to be this gunslinger at the same time. And it's really fascinating to see how applicable a classic film is still today within our society, as well as within the films that we watch. Because people were like saying at the time when the film came out, oh, it's not just a comic book movie. It means something. But at the same time, the Westerns of the day were popular as well as having meanings in them. And it's interesting that, first off, I've seen Logan and I completely forgot about all of that. Maybe <laughs> at the time I just didn't pick up on what the film is. I'm sure they probably brought it up in the movie. I've only seen it once in theaters. My memory's a little bit fuzzy. I can't forget the tree scene. I don't want to say much more <laughs> than that. Like, yeah. I mean, how could you forget? <laughs> Otherwise... It's interesting because Westerns back in the day were like the popcorn movies, you know, with substance, but, you know, like the action movies of their time, relatively speaking. And then you have Logan, which is easily, in my opinion, like without question, the best of the Wolverine films, like the standalone Mm -hmm. ones, like without question. And the fact that it is likened to like a neo-Western of sorts and that marriage between that classic story and what they were trying to say to send off this character. Cause I believe that's the last time you ever see Hugh Jackman's yeah, Wolverine. I think. So I think that's quite special. I even think it was nominated for an adapted screenplay, I think, yeah. which is saying a lot given that it's like a comic book film. It's really, really interesting to see how at the end of Logan, how X 23 quotes the, last iconic words of Shane and I thought that was a really a really amazing bookend to that film because it brings together society of the westerns society of 1950s and it brings our society today into one complete circle yeah I might have to give Logan another watch because uh, now that I've seen Shane I think I could just appreciate it on a different level mm-hmm. with you know, that's always fun to revisit something right. of worth and, and be able to, to pinpoint this type of stuff, which if you asked me 10 years ago, I don't think I'd ever say about a Wolverine film, but here we are. <laughs> now that I say that with it being connected to our world today still, why do you think millennials and the younger generations should watch Shane? Shane is at least a very welcoming film. I don't think it's too niche in any way that it's not going to be for everyone, unless you're like adamantly opposed to Westerns. If that's not the case, I don't think there's very much that could put you off of watching Shane. I think we have this neo revolutionary Western type of thing that started 
Dances with Wolves kind of started it, but then you have like Unforgiven, for instance, which really put that on the map. Like this this rebirth of the genre and a whole new cynical way for a lot of filmmakers or wholesome if you look at Dances with Wolves. You know, mm-hmm. relatively wholesome, I guess. Uh, you know, and ever since then, you've had a lot of filmmakers like the Coen Brothers dabble with it. You know, you know, True Grit, for instance. Three Ten to Yuma was a remake. Actually, was Three Ten to Yuma by the same guy who did Logan, James Mangold? Yes. There you go. That's there you go. So clearly, the guy likes his classic westerns. So Three Ten to Yuma, for instance, yeah, to bring up so many western films and Django Unchained. Uh, even though that's, you know, Tarantino, that's uh, the bring you back to spaghetti Western. There are a lot of Western films that are in the present, like right now. So, you know, this would be harder. Podcast didn't exist in the 80s. But if you asked me in the 80s, I'd be like, I don't know. Nobody watches those <laughs> anymore. But they do now. And you have games like Red Dead Redemption mm. and Red Dead Redemption 2, which is still very special to a lot of people right now. There's this fascination with that genre all over again. And if you're looking at something which something like the the AFI, the American Film Institute, considers Shane like I think the third best Western in American history, for instance. I don't know if I'd agree with that, but that's what they <laughs> feel. If you want like a good classic American Western, there's a there's a there's a whole number, but if you're avoiding specifically the Eastwoods or the Waynes, which to place my bias on this, go Eastwood every, any day. <laughs> but if you're avoiding, wanting to avoid that, but still get the Technicolor aspect, so you're not going to watch High Noon or anything, you want the Technicolor, not a part of this battle type of classic Western that exists on its own, but it also speaks for the entire classic era, then Shane is really good at that. It doesn't have anything to do with other Westerns, but it has everything to do with other Westerns. And I think that makes a classic a classic. The fact that it can exemplify its genre without relying on it. It still is its own staple film. I really hope you enjoyed today's discussion I had with Andreas about George Stevenson's Western masterpiece, Shane. I really enjoyed our discussion and want to say thank you to Andreas for coming on to the show. Please check out his website, filmsfatale.com, for more of his perspectives on filmmaking. If you enjoyed this episode of Cinemillennials and want to watch the film we discussed, please check out my website, dlumoviereview.com, for more episodes of the podcast, film reviews, analyses, and where to purchase the film we discussed today. You can also check out classicmoviehub.com's blog for my monthly column on what we discussed on the show. Please don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating, as it helps more people find the podcast. Thank you.